Thank you. Don't you appreciate the team that's led us this morning in worship? Thank you so much. Yeah. Amen. So grateful. I love that. Death arrested, right? That's wonderful. Let's take our Bibles down, turn to this passage of Scripture that uh, Ruth has read for us. Yesterday morning, I had a phone call with my brother Lonnie, who lives in South Carolina. He actually called me. <laughs> it doesn't happen uh, all that often. He's a man of few words. Uh, actually, he may hear this, and it's okay. We're separated by about 170 miles, so it might should be all right. <laughs> Nickname for him is the Sphinx. <laughs> The sands of time just blow over him. He thinks he's deep thoughts. Every once he speaks. <laughs> it's, it's brilliant and sometimes downright funny. He called me yesterday, and uh, so we were talking. We were having a really good time of fellowship. He is a wonderful brother, uh, one of the finest Christians I know, uh, one of the smartest people I know, professor, but also faithful pastor there in South Carolina. Yesterday morning as we were talking, uh, we were talking about our upcoming trips to Israel. And uh, Susan and I uh, are very grateful with a few folks from here and other churches to take a trip to Israel again on March 30th. This is actually our 2020 trip, <laughs> which was delayed to 2021. <laughs> And now we finally are able to uh, take this. So we're looking forward uh, to going. Uh, it's always an incredible blessing. I think this is, if I'm thinking right, this is the fifth opportunity that we've had to, to go. My brother uh, is going on May 10th. He and his wife and uh, some friends and believers there. And it is his first trip. It's his first trip. And I must tell you, I'm just a little bit envious of him. I'm, I, I'm always a little envious of someone on their first trip to Israel. Because I must tell you, uh, the first time, and some of you have known this, the first time to Israel, the whole time you're there, it's just goosebumps and tears. <laughs> Goosebumps and tears because as you walk those places and you are at the place that you've read about perhaps since your childhood and you think of all that happened at that location as part of God's redemptive plan and there you are, you're just goosebumps. But then there are places that it's just tears. It's just tears, at least has been for me. I remember in that boat on a Sunday morning years ago, floating on the Sea of Galilee and thinking of the great fisher of men, the Lord Jesus, and how he caught me in his net. Goosebumps and tears. You sit on the hillside of the Sermon on the Mount and read from Matthew 5, the Beatitudes. You lower your head and you walk down into the cave in Bethlehem, the church of the Nativity, the place where our Savior was born. Or you also lower your head and you walk into another cave. It's the cave of our Lord's tomb. And let me tell you something. It's empty. <laughs> One of the most amazing moments of my life, I was standing uh, to enter into the garden tomb. <laughs> and this small man 
from somewhere in Europe, I'm not sure of the accent, he came out with a smile like the noonday sun and said, it's still empty. <laughs> and it was just a praise God that went up from everyone assembled. But I must tell you, the most amazing and the most sacred moment for me, and it was not just the most amazing and most, most sacred, but it was the most unexpected. Now let me explain it to you. In 1993, <laughs> I wanted to surprise Susan, uh, 15th wedding anniversary, so for a long time I've been saving up what I could, and she and I were able to join a group from Knoxville going to Israel. And we had a wonderful 10-day experience. And when we got on that bus, we knew no one on that bus. <laughs> and that was by plan. <laughs> but by the end of those 10 days, lifelong friends, some people who on the trip and since then came to faith in Christ, some people that I've been able to conduct their funerals for their homegoing, several members now of this church. Incredible trip. But let me tell you about the first morning. We arrived in Israel late afternoon, so tired, jet lag, you're just stupid. Many of you know what that's like. And the first morning, we went early, it was still very chilly in late March, and the bus took us across the valley in Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. And there we went into the Church of All Nations. Now, at the very front of the Church of All Nations, right before the altar, there's this large rock, bedrock, slab that comes up out of the ground and the entire church has been built around it. And then encircling this huge bedrock slab is a, a low, low fence beautifully decorated with wrought iron all around it and it's been shaped like a crown of thorns. And the rock is known as the rock or the stone of agony. Because it, it sits very prominently there. And from very, very ancient, ancient tradition is believed to be the stone on which the Lord Jesus knelt to pray in the garden. Well, that was amazing. But then totally unexpected as we walked back toward our bus, we were walking down this very narrow sidewalk and to my right is this high stone wall over which I, I cannot see. So we're in single file going down this sidewalk. And then there is in the wall this huge, large, green metal door. And it has been pushed open. And there is a, a smiling man standing outside. And the tour guide tells us, this is not on your itinerary, but I was able to make this happen. And so I want you to follow me, follow me very quietly. And so we entered in through that door, and we were able, just us, to walk into the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, what's before you is a grove, a park of what was once covering the hillside of ancient olive trees. Some of the trees are over 2,000 years old. They were there that night. 
And our little group was allowed to walk the paths around those trees, and then we were given time to scatter out and sit under those trees and think, meditate, pray. And Susan and I were so blessed to do that. And I read this passage. Sitting under the olive trees. 2,000 years old. I read this passage. That was read this morning. Now I would love for you to go to Israel. I enjoy going there. I've made it a practice Every couple of years to try to take a group so that people can go. And Lord willing, maybe in a couple of years we'll have another group go. I would love for you to go to Israel. I would love for you to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. That's not often something that can be done. But I want to tell you something this morning, brothers and sisters. You can go to Israel, and you can go to the Garden of Gethsemane, but only the Lord Jesus can take you there. My prayer this morning is as we go to Gethsemane that Jesus, by His Spirit, will take us there. Now, it's the last night before the Passover, of the Passover. Jesus has just observed Passover with his disciples. He has instituted the ordinance of communion, the Lord's Supper, for the very first time. And the Bible says they sang a hymn... And then they walk through the darkened streets of Jerusalem down the hill through the valley of Kidron and then up the slopes of the Mount of Olives. They go there and they have been there many times because it was one of Jesus' favorite places when he was in the area of Jerusalem. Be there at night. And you can imagine under those low-hanging limbs, there they'd have food from time to time cooked on a fire. They would have fellowship. They'd talk about the things that had happened that day, perhaps. They would, they would rest. They would sleep. They'd been there many times. Now this night, as they walk up the hill and head toward this garden-like spot. There's a full moon shining. It's the Passover moon. I want you to envision it. Moon is highlighting all the trees. They're, they're shimmering in the, in the moonlight. But under the trees, it's just all shadows and darkness. Now this last night, and Jesus knows it's the last night, he wants his disciples to be with him. He needs them. He needs this band of brothers because he knows what is about to happen before the sun rises. And so he asked the eleven. Judas is already left. He's already in the process of betraying the Lord, and he knows where to find the Lord. Jesus needs companionship, so he asks his band of brothers to go with him into that garden. And then he takes the closest, his closest companions, Peter, James, and John, and asks them 
to go further, deeper into the garden with him. He, he needs their support. He needs their prayers as never before. And then Jesus tells them to stay and he goes a little further. He goes to a place only he can go. No one else can go with him. Only he can go. Only he and his father can meet under that Passover moon. Under the branches of those olive trees. And he comes to the spot. We're not told the name of the spot, but we could call it as... It's been referred to in Latin as the Sanctus Sanctorum. Sanctus Sanctorum, the Holy of Holies. Here is a place so sacred. Only God the Son, God the Father, God the Spirit can meet together. Only He can go there. But now I want you to think of it. By the word of God, by this blessed book, the Lord takes us there. My friend, think carefully about the value of this book. When the Lord writes down what was said in the Holy of Holies, And takes you there. I won't linger long here. Because there's so little I can say about it. And what really matters is what the Lord says to us. Will you prepare your heart? We'll have communion. But I hope you'll prepare your heart now. I hope you that are watching online, you'll prepare your heart. Would you pray with me? Lord, I feel so inadequate to this moment, but Lord, I know that this is the Holy of Holies to which you have led us even as you led your disciples. And Lord, you will meet with us. And I thank you that this moment has been ordained by you, whether for those gathered here in this place, those who are watching or will listen, we are with you and you have taken us to this sacred place. Now help us, Lord, to listen not to the words of a failing, stammering preacher, but to listen to the voice of God. And it is a loving voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I feel deeply as I just prayed my assignment this morning, and I confess I'm not up to this task, but I want you to know that I did take comfort from what I would consider, in my knowledge, to be the, the greatest of preachers, as far as ones I've ever read, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of the Victorian age in England, Here's what he said about this. Quote, Since it would not be possible for any believer, however experienced, to know for himself all that our Lord endured, mental suffering and hellish malice, it is clearly far beyond the preacher's capacity to set it forth to you. 
Jesus himself must give you access to the wonders of Gethsemane. As for me, I can invite you to enter the garden with me. Now this morning, I want us to think about the crisis of the king. That's what this is. It's the crisis of the king. Jesus has been heading to this moment his entire lifetime, clearly his entire ministry, and you could say from eternity past, the Son of God had been headed to this moment. And it is for him the moment of crisis. I think it's important for you to understand this morning, as you will note in the coming Sunday mornings, Jesus was completely controlled and at peace. Through all that happened, through the rest of that night and the next day, he was amazing in his peacefulness and his tranquility in spite of what he suffered. And the reason is because of the crisis he passed through this night. This is the crisis for Christ. It's not the cross. It's not before Pilate. It's not before that beast Herod. This is the crisis for Jesus. And so two things quickly. I want us to consider what do we learn about Jesus from this moment? What do we learn about Jesus? And then secondly, what do we learn from Jesus? What do we learn about Jesus? And then what do we learn from Jesus? What do we learn about Jesus? We learn, I think here, the depths of his suffering. We learn as much as any mortal human being can the depths of the suffering of Jesus. Verse 44 says this, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Luke is a physician. He is a highly trained, highly educated man. He chooses his words very carefully as he describes what happened to Jesus. And he said he was in agony. Agony. Which means total and complete duress of body, soul, and spirit. Another one of the Gospels uses a word that means this. He was encircled in agony. Now Luke does not name the place because you know that Luke is writing primarily for a Gentile or Greek speaking audience who would not have understanding of Aramaic or Hebrew phrases. So he doesn't name this place, but we know from the other Gospels that this is Gethsemane. Gethsemane, which means an olive press. Jesus was in agony, body, soul, and spirit, in Gethsemane, a place where olives were crushed under the weight of a huge millstone so that the juice would pour out from the very skin of the olive. And that is where Jesus is, and that is exactly what he is experiencing. He is being crushed. He's being crushed. His body, soul, his mind is being crushed. And it is. Everything he says here in this passage, as he even goes back to his Disciples and the other gospels say he went back three times. 
And he tells them to pray because of temptation. This is the temptation of Christ. He has been tempted many times, yet he's sinless son of God. But this is the great temptation. This is the moment of crisis for him. Think about it. He's in a garden. Where was it that the first temptation came to mankind? In a garden. And there in a garden, the first Adam gave in to his own desires, his own selfishness, and listened to the voice of the tempter, and he failed, disobeyed, and plunged mankind into sin. Now here we have the second Adam, the Lord from heaven, the virgin-born Son of God, He's come to the moment of crisis. He's entered into the garden. He is being tempted as no man has ever been tempted or ever will again. Everything within him in his being desires and cries out to leave this. It is a horror upon him. There are no words to describe. No mind can comprehend the horror that is upon Jesus and the power of the temptation that is encircling him. Hebrews chapter 5 gives us just a little bit of an insight. We're told in Hebrews chapter 5, that it was so terrible, so awful. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears. If you have always thought of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, like that picture that maybe was in your Bible, or maybe on a, on a special plate, with him serenely kneeling and looking up to the moon shining upon him, but his hands clasped very peacefully in prayer. Put that out of your mind. He was offering up cries and anguish. He was wrestling is the word here also. There's a war going on inside The Bible says, and Luke, again, he's a physician. He doesn't write these things lightly. He's under such crushing pressure that sweat like drops of blood are pouring off of him. Very likely what is known as hematidrosis. When under incredible stress... An emotional pressure, the capillaries just beneath the surface of the skin burst and blood comes out the pores. Jesus is in that kind of emotional duress and he is so near death, my friends. Listen, he's so near death that God the Father sends an angel to minister to him. He would have not survived this. He would have died in the garden. Now what, what possibly could Jesus be dealing with? He said, for this cause I came into the world. He said and admitted that he was the one who had come to give his life a ransom for all. He had said just a few days earlier, I have the power to lay my life down and I have the power to take it up again. What is this? Well, again, we can't, we can't understand it. 
What, what is the cost of this? The cost of this, my friend, is this. It's the, it's the depth of his submission to the Father. That it's what it will cost him. The depth of his submission. It's not physical death. I'm, I'm sure you understand this. Now, no one, no human being who ever lived lived life to the fullest as Jesus did. Being the perfect human being, he lived life as no one else has ever yet lived it. And my friend, I want you to listen carefully to that. When someone tells you you can only live life if you get away from God and get away from Christ. You can only live life if you go your way. You can only really enjoy life if you go for the party. It is a lie. The only one who can tell you what life is is the author of life. And Jesus loved life. He loved his disciples. He loved his life. He was on a mission and he was keeping it. He had been loved and appreciated and esteemed. And he had given himself and he knew joy. He doesn't want to die. No human being wants dying. That's an enemy. But it's not death. So what is it? What is it that is not, it's not even the manner of his death. It's not the crown of thorns. It's not the scourging. It's not even the nails. What is it? What would it be that could cause Jesus such unspeakable horror? Well, he wraps it up in his prayer. He lets us listen. It's just three letters. Just three letters. He says, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. Father, verse 42, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Now, cup. What do we learn about cup in the Bible? Remember, you interpret the Bible by the Bible. In the Old Testament, the word cup means your portion. Your portion. Remember what David said? The Lord is my cup. We are told that we will take the cup of salvation. Our portion is salvation. So when Jesus is talking about the cup, he's talking about his portion. And it's interesting, isn't it? This is the second time this night, he's talked about the cup. Just a, a short time ago, when he finished the Passover meal, what did he do? He took the wine, poured it in a cup, and said, this is the, what? Cup of the New Testament in my blood. Now we're getting closer. What is Jesus talking about? It's his portion. What is his portion in the new covenant? What is his portion in the cup of salvation that he will offer freely to all who will receive it? His portion is his blood. His portion is death. It's the cup of death that Jesus is talking about. But now listen carefully. It's not the physical death. It's not the physical death. It is what brings death and has brought death. It is the wretchedness of sin. That is what's in the cup. The wretchedness of sin. 
It is the wages of sin. The wages of sin is what? Death. Physical death, yes. But what, what is the real wage of sin? Separation from God. This is what Jesus is seeing in the cup that he must drink. The wretchedness of sin. The wages of sin. Not his sin. Our sin. He is seeing the filth of all that he hates in his holy soul. All that can be imagined as wrong and evil. All that is contrary to everything that he is holy. All that is wrong with the world. Even the little portion of it that has brought this terrible crime into Europe. It's all sin. It's all in the cup. And what happens to sin? The wrath of God. His Father, who He is with in the garden, cannot overlook sin. Sin must be punished. Righteousness must be affirmed and sin punished. Yet we're all sinners. We are hopeless. Our only hope is a substitute worthy to take our place. Someone sinless to become our sin bearer. Someone worthy to be the lamb who can be lifted up and the wrath of a holy God come down upon a sinless one. That's what Jesus sees. That's what's in his cup. What Jesus sees in that cup is what he hates most. He must become. And what he values most, his fellowship with his father, he must lose. That is the cross. That on the cross, he would become what he hates most, sin. And he would lose what he loves most, the fellowship he's known from eternity with his father. As God brings the punishment due of sin on the one who's bearing it. His son. That's what Jesus sees. And not one drop of it is his. Friend, listen to me. I, I'm in that cup. You're in that cup. The depths of his suffering. But greater than the depths of his suffering is this. The depths of his submission. He did not lose his mind. He did not lose his will. He did not lose his ability to hear the voice of Above his own voice. The voice of his father. Now friends, listen carefully. There's a mystery here. We, we cannot enter into what's going on between Jesus, the son and the father. He, he takes us there and we kneel in awe and wonder and we marvel but my friend even in eternity when you and I have glorified minds we'll never be able to understand it 
we'll never be able to comprehend what Jesus is doing. It all comes down to faith. Jesus forsook all to trust his Father. What is faith? F-A-I-T-H, forsaking all, I trust him. And Jesus forsakes life. He forsakes the joy. He forsakes everything he's ever known. And he trusts his Father. He cried out and he cried out. And my friend, he was heard. I read to you from Hebrews. Listen to the next verses. Hebrews chapter 5. Listen carefully, church. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made complete, he became the source of eternal salvation. That is what Jesus trusted to his Father. We're coming to communion, and I recognize our time. So I just touch on these three things that we learn from Jesus. What do we learn from Jesus? And you must, you must take these with you. What do we learn from Jesus? Well, we learn about prayer. We learn about the priority of prayer. Jesus was a man of prayer like no one else. And that's the reason his disciples said, Master, what? Teach us to pray. Notice what Jesus said about prayer. He said, verse 40, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. They're the sleepy disciples. Pray. That you may not enter into temptation. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and he prayed. And he said again in verse 46. Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He Enter into temptation. He's not talking about just being tempted. We're all tempted. But it's entering into it. Participating in it. Pray. This is what he himself is experiencing. We learn about the priority of prayer. And my friend, I tell you, when you read this passage, I, I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm so little like Jesus and so much like those disciples. Asleep. What's the purpose of prayer? What do we learn from Jesus about prayer? Don't you think Jesus could tell you what the purpose of prayer is? Somebody, some of us have listened to too many people tell us what the purpose of prayer is. Some of you have read too many books. Someone tell you what the purpose of prayer is. Some of you have read too many blogs. I would encourage you to first listen to Jesus. Here's the purpose of prayer. Verse 42, Father, if you are willing, 
remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Are you going to tell me Jesus had a lack of faith? Are you, going to, are you going to allow someone to tell you that you should declare to God what's going to happen? That you should speak what's going to be reality? You're going to believe the heresy that you are going to tell Almighty God like a super God what's going to happen. That is blasphemy. And some of you need to stop watching it and buying the books because that's what's behind that. It's money. Jesus had perfect faith. And what was his faith? Here's faith. Not my will. Thy will be done. Don't ever forget that. You cannot have more faith than to believe Father knows best. Prayer is not you getting your will done in heaven. Prayer is entering into God himself and seeing his will done on earth. And we learn from Jesus the power of prayer. You know what? I love these two words. Verse 45. He rose up. The phrase here, rose, he rose. Let's do four. He rose up from prayer. It was a time when the prayer, awful as it was, was over. He rose up. And guess what, my friends? He was ready. He was prepared. He walked to that mob. He walked to them. He bowed his back to the scourge. He inclined his head for the crown. He crawled up on that cross. It was not nails that held him there. It was the love of his father and submission and faith that nailed him to that cross and held him there, not spikes. He was peaceful and he was prepared. His disciples weren't. How do you know they weren't prepared? How do you know they weren't prayed up? They tried to take matters into their own hands. They're going to accomplish their will by use of military. They're going to insert themselves into something that's wrong and make their will happen. They have a plan. They know best. They know how to fix things in this world. And they think that because they don't know the mind of God. Because they haven't prayed. No. They haven't prayed enough. But they've watched a lot of news. They've read a lot of blogs. They've let people tell them what it means to be a Christian. And they've let their faith be stolen from them. From egocentric, self-serving politicians. Who are clueless. Of what's really happening on this earth. 
and what is about to happen. People who don't pray don't know what's going on. They just talk like they do. I want to ask you something. And I'm saying this. I I don't really know why I'm saying it or who I'm saying it to. But I know that I'm supposed to say this. It is so deeply on my heart the last few days. There are some people here. And there's some people watching. You pray and you pray. And you tell God and you tell God. But there are some people here who have been afraid to say, not my will, but thy will be done. That could be for some parents here. You have your will for your children, your grandchildren. That could be for some couples, maybe in the heart of hearts, about their marriage, they don't want to say, thy will be done. It could be some suffering with illness or your loved one suffering with illness and you just, you can't say it. Friend, can I, can I tell you, stop for a moment. Who are you talking to? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Jesus was heard, and he got the answer. His prayer was answered. The answer was, this must happen. I will sustain you. I will be your strength. You, my son, I will rise and lift from the dead. And in you, salvation will come. And this earth will be restored. And all the sons and daughters of Adam who hear my voice will be able to come home. Jesus got his prayer answered. There's no prayer more faith-filled than this. Not my will, but thy will be done. What is it? What is it that you yet are holding back from God? I want to tell you, whatever the Lord takes, He takes in love. And what He does, He does in love. You may not see it now, but you will see it. 